Well, good morning. My name is Don Pizzotta, and I serve as one of the elders here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. And I would like to invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 50 through 58. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you can find our passage on page 953 and 954. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for this morning and for this opportunity to worship You. And Lord, as we open Your Word, we pray that You would give us open eyes and ears to the truth of Your Word, and that our lives might be changed and conformed more and more into the image of Your Son. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, some of you might be familiar with uh, the theologian and uh, evangelist Dwight Lyman Moody, or D.L. Moody. He was an American evangelist and publisher who founded the Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publishers, along with other, th- other institutions. Moody once famously said, quote, Someday you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit shall live forever. Death is inevitable. We can all agree with that. No matter how much power we gain, no matter how much wealth we amass, or no matter how much glory that is placed upon us, death still comes. That is true for Christians as much as anyone else. We know as Christians that the wages of sin is death. However, there is a distinction. Christians' hope is not in earthly power, or worldly wealth, or selfish glory. We know that those things end at the grave. Our hope is in something far more valuable 
and far more certain. Our hope is in the promises of God, the promises found all throughout Scripture that tell us we are going to have a victorious life. Victorious now because of the hope and faith that we have in His Word and who He is. And victorious in the age to come, fully realized when Jesus comes again. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the longest chapter in the book. And Paul is addressing the tenth and final issue that faces that church in Corinth. Paul dedicates this chapter to the topic of resurrection. Now, there's much that we can say about the chapter as a whole, but Paul and the issue that he's addressing here is not necessarily about Christ's resurrection. The Corinthians didn't have a problem believing that. What they were having a problem with and what was confusing them was that they were unsure and unconvinced of their own resurrection. The, the Corinthians were confused and they needed convincing that just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they too would one day be raised. And to that end, and for our purposes here this morning, I want to give us a, an overview of chapter 15, and I will point out a couple of key facts as we walk through the, the sections of chapter 15 until we get to our passage in verse 50. This is going to be kind of quick. So chapter 15 starts in verse 1 through 11, Paul gives evidence of Christ's res resurrection. In these verses, Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of the gospel, the gospel that he preached to them that they had received and that they believed to be true, and the gospel in which they currently were standing and being saved by. And then in verse 3 through 5, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So that's verses 1 through 11. And then in 12 through 19, Paul warns the Corinthians of the implications of denying bodily resurrection. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, but there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then in verse 17, Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In verses 20 through 28, Paul explains that since Christ has been raised, believers can know that God will raise those who belong to Christ and thus will destroy death. In verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ all will be made alive. And then in verse 27, Paul says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, that is, Jesus' feet, all things, including death. In verses 29 through 34, Paul highlights the absurdity of the Corinthians not believing that God raises the dead. 
It's in this absurdity that Paul exhorts the Corinthians in verses 33 and 34 not to be deceived, to wake up from their drunken stupor, and to stop sinning. And then in the section right before our passage this morning, verses 35 through 49, Paul further explains the resurrection using several examples, including from nature and then the comparison of Adam and Jesus. Paul says in verse 36 through 38, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he, ch- as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So Paul says, just like the seed that receives a new body when it becomes a plant, we will receive a resurrection body. And that brings us to verses 50 through 58, the final section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I've entitled this morning's message, A Victorious Life. And these verses that we're covering this morning are the climax of that entire chapter. Paul's main idea is the need for transformation and death's final defeat. So our main idea for this morning is the need for transformation and death's final defeat. We'll see this in three categories or three points, and this will serve as our outline this morning. First, we'll see the believer's change in verses 50 through 53. Then we'll see the believer's conquest in verses 54 through 57. And finally, the believer's charge in verse 58. So if you're taking notes, our three points this morning, our outline, the believer's change, the believer's conquest, and the believer's charge. First, the believer's change in verses 50 through 53. Paul picks up this passage by giving us two statements that are identical in meaning. They are synonymously parallel. Look there in verse 50, and Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, semicolon, the two phrases. First, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Second, the perishable does not inherit the imperishable. You might remember a few weeks ago that Pastor Bert pointed out the meaning of the word flesh from Romans chapter 8. He said that the Greek word sarx was a word that had many different meanings, like our English word for bat. Baseball bat, winged animal, you remember that comparison. Here, the word flesh or sarx is put into a phrase, and the phrase is sarx kaihema. It translates, as you see in the ESV, as flesh and blood. And in this context, it means a human being in contrast to a divine being. Why is that important? Well, Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, a human being, in contrast to a divine being, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our bodies, as we know them today, cannot go to heaven. Now look at the second phrase. Paul writes there, the perishable does not inherit the imperishable. Another word for perishable is corruptible or deteriorating. The corruptible does not inherit the incorruptible. This is a problem. 
It's a problem because, as we said earlier, the wages of sin is death. And as a result of sin, our bodies are dying with every passing moment. Paul here is teaching and trying to convince the Corinthians that they are going to be bodily resurrected, but their bodies, whether dead or alive, are unfit for heaven in their current state. And what Paul is doing is, I have a, he's setting up something really big here. I, I just know it. He's setting up something huge. And he says in verse 51, Behold, That's so many different words to use there. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Look, I'm telling you something that God has previously had hidden. No one has ever heard what I'm about to tell you ever before. And what was this mystery that Paul is is talking about? Pick it up at the end of verse 51. He says, we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Wait a minute. Paul says that we shall not all sleep. He's not talking about your eight hours a night. Sleep is death. And what what we see here is a transition into a conversation about the end times. Not everyone is going to die. That is, not everyone will physically die. But that's not even the mystery. Paul already talked about that in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 when he wrote, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that, he, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if the mystery is not that we are not all that we shall not all sleep then what is the mystery it's the very next phrase that we shall all be changed this is the believers change this is where that change takes place and paul is saying that we will not all die as in physically die but we will all be changed our bodies will be changed amen i, I could i could use that especially tomorrow morning When does this change take place? Look at verse 52. Paul tells us the timing of this change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So first, in a moment. This is not a caterpillar in a cocoon changing to a butterfly kind of change. This is right now in a split second. And then in a twinkling of an eye, and reinforces that speed at which this change is going to take place. The twinkling of an eye in the Greek was not about flashing lights. It was more the uh, English version of in the blink of an eye. Or we could just say really fast. And then third, Paul says, at the last trumpet. This is, again, in reference to what he had previously written in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 16 says about Jesus' second coming, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Hallelujah, with the sound of the trumpet of God, Jesus will come again. Believers both dead and alive will be changed in that moment. 
And Paul says in verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and then we shall be changed. Two groups are going to be changed. The first group is believers who are dead when Christ returns. Those people, God will resurrect and change their earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. The second group of people, Paul says, and we, that is, believers who are alive when Christ returns, will also be transformed and receive new heavenly bodies. All believers, dead or alive, will be changed. Now, remember back in verse 50, I said that Paul had uh, that statement that was parallel. It was synonymously parallel in, in verse 50. Paul had two synonymous statements there, and he does the same thing here in verse 53. We see it again. And a little side note about this. This is, this is significant because in Paul's literary style, he very rarely does this. Paul wrote some serious run-on sentences all throughout Scripture, but what Paul rarely did was repeat in two, sentence, two sentences what he could say in one. So this is significant. Paul says in verse 53, for this perishable, uh, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This perishable and this moral both say body, both say must put on the imperishable and the immortal. One commentator explains it this way, quote, God has planned to transform our perishable mortal bodies, whether dead or alive, into imperishable immortal bodies. The word for must put on means to put on any kind of clothing, to put on or to wear. And here it metaphorically refers to the taking on of characteristics, virtues, intentions, etc. Our perishable mortal bodies must take on the characteristics of Christ's resurrection body, end quote. We know from the whole counsel of Scripture that as believers, we are changed when we are converted. For example, we are changed from slave of sin to slave of Christ. We also know in that that we are experiencing an ongoing change. We call it ongoing or progressive sanctification. As we strive and fight against our sinful nature empowered by the Holy Spirit and changing more and more into the image of Jesus. And in that, Pastor Burt pointed out a few weeks ago, we are equipped with, an, with a weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that Word tells us that Jesus is coming back again. And in that glorious moment, at the last trumpet, we will finally be changed whether we are walking on this earth or buried in it. We will be changed putting on the imperishable, immortal body. Understanding that truth is important, but there has to be more, right? What happens after that change? Praise God that we are changed, but what is next? And that brings us to our second point, the believer's conquest in verses 54 through 57. Paul tells us exactly what happens after our bodies are changed. Look there at the text, starting in verse 54, Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We said earlier that verses 50 through 58 are the climax of chapter 15, and these two verses, 54 and 55, are at the peak of that climax. Christ has already defeated death at the cross. It was a fight that everyone knew that Jesus had won. There wasn't any going to the scorecards to try to figure it out. But death was not completely gone at that point. Now, Paul says, after God changes believers' bodies when Christ returns, Jesus will absolutely, once and for all, permanently and forever, defeat death. Death itself will be dead. There will be nothing left of death, death, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. At the end of verse 54, Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Stephen read this passage from Isaiah earlier during the... Um, our time of silent prayer from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And the sense there is that death is done. It's swallowed up in victory, as Isaiah writes. This is the forever defeat of death. And then Paul says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I want to be a little bit careful here because this sounds like a taunt. Like Paul is taunting death at this point. Uh, and he actually is. That is exactly what Paul is doing. He's referring specifically to the fact that Christ took on death's sting at the cross. He took it on and completely absorbed death's best and most vicious blow. And Jesus absorbed that sting so that we would not have to absorb any of it. Verse 55 comes from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, where God is judging Israel. And Paul compares it to the sting that Jesus absorbed through his death on the cross. And here, Paul is using the paraphrase of Hosea's statement that death itself is dead because Jesus died. And it's not just because Jesus died, but because he rose again. Jesus has secured the believer's conquest through his own conquest over death in his death and resurrection. Now I want us to look at the first part of verse 56, because Paul here is further explaining verse 55 there. The sting of death is sin. That sting of death is sin in verse 56 points us right back to verse 55. <clears throat> Paul told the Romans in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So by permanently defeating death, Jesus will also permanently defeat sin. Paul then explains more. The second part of verse 56, Paul writes, and the power of sin is the law. Now this has Romans 6 through 8 vibes all over it, right? We've been hearing about this in Pastor Burt's series in Romans. 
But it also takes us all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent and sin did not have an opening or opportunity to seduce the first couple until there was a law, a command given by God. Remember? God told them, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. It was that command that opened the door for sin and ushered in death. This triangle that exists of law, sin, and death began all the way back at the garden. We see it all through Paul's writings. As I mentioned, Pastor Bert has covered it in his series. Through the law comes knowledge of sin from Romans chapter 3. Sin is not counted where, the law, where there is no law in Romans chapter 5. The law enables sin to abound in Romans 5 and in Romans 7. The law brings wrath in Romans 4. The letter or the law kills in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The law is the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation in chapter 3 and uh, verses 7 and 9 in 2 Corinthians. And apart from the law, sin lies dead in Romans chapter 7. So by defeating sin permanently, Christ also permanently ensures that God's law is only life-giving and not sin-empowering. Life-giving for believers. A conquest that we were completely unable to complete ourselves. But nonetheless, we were able to live out through Christ who strengthens us. That's why Paul gloriously proclaims in verse 57, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should joyfully and reverently and humbly give thanks to God, who gives us, that is, us as believers, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our victory is secured finally, completely, and forever through the love of Christ and His finished work. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's the word of first importance that Paul talks about in, in, in verses 3 through 4 where he said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. Now, we're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks, Lord willing, as Pastor Burke continues his series in Romans 6 through 8. But I want us to listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 35 through 37. Paul writes there, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long. We are, re we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The believer's conquest is sure and certain, and we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the cause of thanksgiving. This is the cause of Paul's proclamation, thanks be to God. And we ought to walk as ones who have been given this victory, this victorious life, not because we're promised a perfect life here and now, free of trials and hardships. And we cannot walk as if we did something to earn 
or deserve it. We walk as victorious conquerors because of God's grace. This has implications in our church life as well. Our life together with our brothers and sisters, even here this morning. That life should be marked by a noticeable joy, a humility and love for one another, a confidence and boldness in the truth that we are now and we know that we will ultimately be victorious. We know who wins. We know the outcome of the story. By God's grace, you know and are part of the promise. And if so, our charge is to live it out. We must share it with those around us. Paul doesn't leave this to this responsibility to our imagination either. This charge is, and he tells us and the church in Corinth what we need to do. That brings us to our final point, the believer's charge in verse 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If we really believe that we will be changed, and we really believe that the conquest over death will occur, if we really believe and we are indeed grateful that the promises of our resurrection is certain. That change from perishable to imperishable, from corrupted to incorruptible, from dishonorable to honorable, from weak to powerful, from natural to spiritual, from mortal to immortal, and from earthly to heavenly, we should therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This charge that Paul gives here is amazing in so many ways. Paul has just finished addressing the tenth very significant issue with the church in Corinth. As Jesse said several weeks ago, this church was a hot mess. But look how Paul addresses them. At the close of this climactic chapter, the tenth and final issue, Paul says, my beloved. He still loves them. It's a model of love and compassion, and and it's not even his main point. His point isn't to prove to us that he loves them. It's not even to prove to them that he loves them. They, They know that he loves them. His point, though, is threefold. And I just snuck three more points in there if you haven't been paying attention. Really quickly, though, threefold points for this charge that Paul gives. First, he tells them to be steadfast. Back in verse 1, as I mentioned earlier, Paul starts off by acknowledging that they are standing in the gospel. And as they stand in the gospel, they are to stand firm. Steadfast means to be firmly in place, solid holding tight to the promises that God will resurrect the believers, changing them in their conquest. Second, Paul tells them to be immovable. Do not fall for the lies of those who would say that there is no resurrection. Do not move from the truth that you have been taught and that you are currently standing in. And then third, Paul exhorts them to be abounding which translates to be 
outstanding or excellent in the work of the Lord. That charge to be outstanding in their work is, the word for work there is actually translated into the, uh, a word that means that which one does as a regular activity. Not just a job, but your occupation, your tasks, your day-to-day life. So I'll paint a picture. We are not just Crawford Avenue Baptist Church on Sunday or Wednesday or community group days. We are the church all the time. And our work in that context should be dedicated to building one another up. Everything we do, every task or work believers are called to do during daily church life. That's, for us as believers, that's daily life period. That work is intended to be excellent, outstanding, always abounding. And it also includes fulfilling our normal responsibilities, whether we are a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a child or a sibling, a church member, a church leader, an elder, a deacon, an usher, a child care or nursery worker, Crawford kids, employee, employer, citizen, or neighbor. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, if you're a believer here this morning, know that you are changed, that you are changing, and that you will one day be changed completely. Know that you are made more than a conqueror and are going to experience the final conquest. And remember that as a believer, we are charged to be steadfast and immovable, always excellent and abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Because God raised Jesus from the dead and will one day raise believers, our work can never be worthless. Friends, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good for everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian, You are uncertain of whether or not you are a believer. There really is no other way to say this other than to say that these promises are not for you. The truth of the matter is whether you are alive or dead when Christ returns, you will not be changed. Your body will remain perishable. There will be no conquests for the unbeliever. But there is still hope in that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us us alive together with Christ. And we are told that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. I pray that even here this morning, you will do just that. that. Pray and seek after Christ. Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you do so, 
confess it with your mouth. Tell a friend, find one of the elders or one of the leaders after the the service and tell them. Friends, our future as believers has many mysterious aspects to it. But at the same time, there are many truths revealed to us in God's Word. Many promises and assurances that give us great confidence, even in the face of trials, even in the face of hardships and persecution, and yes, even in the face of death. On Friday, the church, the church universal, lost uh, Tim Keller to pancreatic cancer. Keller was a pastor and author who had an impact on many brothers and sisters across the world. And his son, on the occasion of his passing Friday morning, shared this, quote, Timothy J. Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar, died this morning at home. Dad waited till he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last We take comfort in some of his last words. He said, quote, There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest, end quote. There is no downside indeed, because we know that this victorious life is but a shadow of the victorious eternal life to come. Whether we are alive or dead at the last trumpet when Christ returns victorious, we know that we will be resurrected and changed to take part in the final and complete conquest. That conquest will be over death and sin forever, to spend eternity with the great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning again, and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the promises that Jesus will come again and that we will be changed in that moment. We thank you for the promise of our conquest and for the assurance of our change. And as we anticipate this morning's baptisms, Father, we celebrate the the symbology and the symbolic raising to walk in newness of life, even as we look forward to receiving our new imperishable bodies for all of eternity when Jesus comes again, where we will worship you in glory forever. Give us continued grace to walk together in our church life, united in our love for you and for one another, emboldened to share your good news with those around us. We pray that you would give us strength to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work that you have set before us, and help us to know that our work is never worthless. Give us strength to never give up on doing what is good. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.